discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio with me, Dominic Frisbee. It is late August, it's Friday evening. I'm sitting in a pub in South London in Clapham with that well-known Canadian newsletter writer who lives in the Bahamas. What's he doing in Clapham, goodness knows. But he's Dave Skarika. Welcome, Dave, to the show. Yeah, well, late August is kind of like winter in the Bahamas, so what am I doing here? Well, we were sitting outside, but it got a bit chilly, so we had to come inside. But yeah, welcome, Dave. Well, what are you doing in London? Well, actually, I had to go do some business throughout Europe. Um, long story short, but my credit cards get processed out of Monaco, so I had to go down there, meet my banker, and I decided to do a little trip through Europe. So I went to Frankfurt, went to Amsterdam, and then I came to London for a few days. Actually, I actually have a British passport. And my father was born in Leeds after the war. And um, because the stipulation is your father has to be born there and you have to be born, born before 1983. Okay. So I never had to live here or anything to get my British citizenship. So I was like, I better come one of these days. <laughs> and because we have direct flights to London, to Nassau, yeah. and vice versa, it makes it very easy to do it. You, know, you just got to watch out about BA losing your luggage. <laughs> Did they lose your luggage? Well, no, one time... This flight that goes to Nassau actually stops over in Nassau on the way to Caymans. And one time I took the flight just from Nassau to Cayman, which is like an hour and a half flight, and they left my luggage in Nassau. <laughs> Never got on the plane, and it came like a day later. Oh, okay. I don't like to do a lot of connections with BA. Better than that, the great. The world's favorite airline. <laughs> now, but uh, we, one of the things that was interesting was we were sitting opposite, and we were just looking at a house over the road from the pub, and... Clapham's an area that used to be a bit grotty, but it's now very up and coming. A lot of young people live here. It's obviously house prices have gone exponential in the house price boom. But we were comparing rents between here and Dave's Canal View uh, property in the Bahamas, and they are considerably more here than they are there. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Actually, it's a lot of that's throughout Europe. Like when I was in Amsterdam. I was asking... I mean, Clapham's nice, but I'd rather live in the Bahamas. Well, the same thing in Amsterdam. Like, you know, being on the canals there are nice, but it's like, it's cold and it's damp and, you know, you're going to pay 3,000 euros or something for a small apartment. So it's just really interesting how a lot of Europe and London especially have these, like, in my opinion, overflated, like, real estate prices. But people are still willing to pay them. And, and a nice three-bed condo in a nice community with tennis courts and swimming pool and sea view. You could probably view. get right now for three thousand dollars a okay. month, so roughly two thousand so pounds. pounds. So, yeah. you know, so yeah. And, and are there a lot of tax exiles in the Bahamas? Yes, uh, actually, Bahamas is a lot of Canadians. I mean, myself being Canadian, because Canada doesn't have any warm place to move itself. You know, where if you're American, yeah. you can just move down to Florida, to Florida or, or you know. So, no, no, there's a lot of Canadians down there. There's actually a bunch of Europeans down there. A lot of, um, a lot of people who work for international banks because there's an international banking community live down there. But mostly it's Canadians because it's English-speaking. It's pretty close. Is it rough? It's a th- is, it, is it rough? I mean, you know, some Caribbean islands can be a bit rough. It can. There's a high crime rate. Most of that is drug-related, and it doesn't really affect the expats. It's just, you know, like drug dealers... Killing, what is that in it. downtown Nassau or yeah, something? Yeah, downtown Nassau. There's an area called Over the Hill, which is, if you go to downtown Nassau, there's a 
the British Colonial Hotel, which is the Hilton, and you go over this hill, and it's literally over the hill. It's, it's really weird because the, the Hilton's a beautiful hotel, and you have the tour, where, you know, the area where the cruise ships come in and everything, and you really go over this hill, and you're right in the hood, just like that. So that's where a lot of the crime would occur. And there's a lot of maybe petty crime, like B&Es and stuff like that, and obviously with the recession, yeah. some of that has picked up. But it's not like Jamaica or something like that where you're afraid to walk down the street and get your hand cut off so someone steal your watch. Yeah. There's, not, there's not that sort of thing. And, and what is the national currency of the Bahamas? Is the Bohemian dollar. And, um, and is that backed by gold? No. It's actually equal to the U.S. dollar. Okay, is it pegged, is it? Which has been good until probably the last couple of years. Okay. You know? And it's, it's amazing. The Bahamas has been able to keep it pegged for the lifetime. Now, what they do in the Bahamas, is they always keep rates a few percentage points higher okay. than they are in the U.S. to kind of keep that peg. But, you know, financially, actually, the Bahamas is probably in better shape because we don't have... So is it good to own Bahamian dollars and, and just have a savings account there? Mm, well, not really because the Bahamas... One problem with the Bahamas is to... Because it's a small country, and to keep funds in the country, they have exchange controls. Okay. So, like, the locals have a very difficult time, say, investing in stocks. But, and again, this is where it's helped a bit, because most of the locals invest in local real estate, and they've owned land, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for years and years and years. And, of course, with the, a lot of expats moving down there and oceanfront property going through the, not through the roof, because we just said London's more expensive. But, yeah. you know, climbing in price, they've benefited from that, and they don't know anything about the stock market because of the exchange controls. And that's helped them in this downturn because no one lost their shirt, say, speculating in U.S. stocks or international stocks or whatnot. And the property market's probably off 10 to 20% from its top, but we didn't have the huge run-up and bubble or leverage in the property market that Americans had. Uh, if, am I right in saying Barbados is the most expensive Caribbean island? Barbados. Apart from maybe, maybe Moose Probably very upscale areas. Again, the Bahamas is all areas. Like There's an area called Lyford Key. Yeah. which is a very upscale gated community or ocean club, same thing. Okay. Lyford Key, like Sean Connery lives in Lyford Key. Um, it's got a lot, a lot of old money, like the Fords have a place in Lyford Key. So something like that is like, the, a lot is a minimum $700,000. Yeah. And a built house is a minimum a minimum $2 million there. Okay. So, but the, like the gated community I live in, in, which is called Sandyport, like you can get condos there for half a million dollars, right? So, and... It, it, so it depends on where you are, but okay. you can basically still get a nice condo in the ocean in the Bahamas for four or five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, okay, can. so it's, but I thought, I mean, is am I right in saying Moustique and Barbados are the most expensive, and then yeah. it's the Bahamas after yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it, okay. And it's very well developed. Do you remember in the Bahamas, our GDP per capita is twenty five thousand okay. dollars, which is basically, in my opinion, a second world country. So it's not a third world country. No. And of course, if anyone just uh, this past weekend. Or around, I guess, we're in the 23rd or so. You know, Miss Universe was in the Bahamas okay. this year. I actually went to a fashion show with a friend of mine. Uh, Did you offer to manage her money for her? Yeah, <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to watch like this fashion show with all the Miss Universe yeah. contestants. So, and that's the nice thing about living in the Bahamas too is that it is a bit cosmopolitan, and things like that do happen. Like we were talking earlier about how my favorite band is Duran Duran, and Duran yeah. Duran actually played at Atlantis. The resort last year, and I got to see them down there in the Bahamas. Oh, okay. So, so you do because we're so close to the states, and you have this world famous Atlantis Resort in Nassau or in Paradise Island. 
you do have events. Well, there. I mean, uh, you should if if you wanted to organise it, you could probably put on a comedy night in the Bahamas, and I would ship you over comedians from the UK. We'll do that. And well, and, and, and I, listen, I'm telling you, they would queue up to go. They actually have. I think it's called. There's a room in Atlantis, which is a comedy room, and they have comedy acts there. US so acts we, or. Pardon? Usually it must US be American acts, acts because I, I haven't heard of them. Usually them. US acts, but I'm sure they'd have British comedians down there. Yeah. So there's enough Brits down there too, for, you know, yeah. that would probably just storm in the place and take it over. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Show them what real jokes sound like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, other than, hey, my favorite comedian is Sam Kinison, so. Okay. That's a lot of screaming, though. Right, anyway, this is a financial show, so let's talk about uh, the markets. What's it, It's late August, the S&P keeps going higher, it baffles a lot of people. What, what, well, what's going on? We were just talking about him, and, and I hate to quote him so much, and I have been recently, but when someone's right, they're right. And I agree with Mark Faber in that what people don't understand is the impact of monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, and that... What they're doing in the States and really a lot around the Western world is by cutting rates to zero, you, like, for example, my mother, who is the most conservative person in the world, who I use as a complete con- contrary indicator, yeah. God bless her, right? Last October when the market crashed, she told me she was selling all her mutual funds. And I told everyone, this is when the S&P was probably 800. Yeah. You know, we're near the bottom. And, of course, you know, it went a little lower, but essentially that was the capitulation of yeah. the bottom. And, and, and did she sell a mutual fund? Yeah, she did, right at the bottom. Great contrary indicator. I wrote it in my newsletter too. That it's okay. time to buy, you know. But um, <laughs> she talked about wanting into one of these little mining stock deals that I get into. Why? Because on her GIC, which is a fixed income investment in Canada, she can't get any interest on it. You know, these are like short-term, yeah. like six-month, one-year kind of things, and you're just getting one percent or something. So that's what they're doing. They're forcing people to speculate. Yeah. So if you can't get any money in um, fixed income. What are you going to do? You're going to go into the stock market. You're going to go into assets. And then, then you've got this mentality where if you miss the move and you underperform the market, then you really have to get in. So I believe that a lot of the market going up is just based on that rather than, say, economic fundamentals, that they printed all this money and they've cut rates to zero and the money sloshes around. And yeah. I mean, I, I have two very high net worth individuals who have approached me and asked me you know, not to manage money for them but to advise them what to do with their money. And... You know, there's no incentive to stay in cash. You no, want to no you want to get dis- defensive, but but I mean there is the argument the argument that this is a market that is more about the return of your capital than the return on your capital. Now I think that was true through '07 to '08. But see, I also one of my other mentors, a guy named John Templeton, and Templeton used to say that you have to buy at the point of maximum pessimism. And this is why I don't buy into, buy into a lot of doom and gloomers. Like when I looked what went on in the November to March period, the sentiment indicators I watched and the amount of bearishness that was out of there and you know, the doom and gloom stuff we saw in like all the yeah. banking system, to me that was almost signs of this is which, when you should be which buying. Which sentiment indicators do you follow? Let, let me just, because the problem with sentiment indicators is a lot of people say one thing and do another. Well, and I follow... You know, I, I, I mean, I was reading today, just, just very quickly... The sentiment is roughly where it was in October 2007 now. Yeah, but this is where you're exactly correct in terms of people doing different things with their money. Yeah. In July of last year, there was a huge... I fall in Investors Intelligence or the American Association of Individual Investors, better known as AAII. But see, what happened last November, last, last, sorry, July, I think it's the opposite of what you're talking about right now, that 
the bearish readings were through the roof in July. That wasn't the bottom. You know, the market had a real rally in yeah. July, August, and then it tanked. But I think people were fully invested bears. See what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. I think now it's just the act's opposite. People are zero invested bulls. So people may be saying that, you know, the market's going to go higher, it's going to go higher. But after, like, say, getting wiped out on a margin call or panicking and selling, and how many people have really turned around and actually are buying the market? And the mutual fund inflows in the United States have shown this. Like, the first half of this year, and there were, there were inflows in July, by the way, but after I tell you this, but showed that there was a $238 million, very small. So basically, that's zero. That's basically flat. Mm. But there were no net inflows in mutual funds, despite the huge rally from March to, say, early July. And there were still huge inflows going into bond funds. A lot of them are corporate bond funds, which actually, I think, were a good place to be when the market was rallying. But still, like again, it showed that Okay, the market, maybe people were feeling better and saying they were more bullish, but they really weren't putting money to work. I like, I like moving... Go on, you, you oh, carry on, finish so off. So, another indicator I really like is the percentage of stocks trading above their 200, 50, and 20-day moving averages yeah. on the NYSE in the, in, in, in the United States. And basically, when you get that below, say, 10% in all three of them, so less than one in every 10 stocks are trading above any one of those three moving averages, mm-hmm. that's an, an extreme oversold condition. Yeah. And it's only happened a couple times in the last 20 years. Like it happened in E7, it happened in 2002, and it happened in 2007 and early 2008. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, it's just a sign that stocks are way too oversold. So the fact that that happened too also was another reason. Yeah. But here's my problem. But you are a natural bull. I, you are, every time I hear you talk, you're always, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who trade on bad news, that you know, some of the newsletter writers, some of the speakers at the I love to trade on bad news. What I mean by trade on bad news, they sell, they sell their newsletters by by selling doom and gloom. Because bad news sells better than good news. Of course, yeah, because there's this, you're, you're 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 a naturally more bullish. Positive I think my person. personality, psychological makeup, and and then, you know, sometimes to a fault is, I am naturally bullish, positive yeah. person. Now, my first book in 1999 was called Stock Market Panic, How to Prosper in the Coming Bear Market. And I talked about equity prices underperforming and commodities outperforming. So I'm, and in 2005, we predicted the housing crash. And my, now, what, what, what I failed to kind of guess, I don't want to say grasp, but what I failed, to, I guess I underestimated is a better phrase, mm-hmm. was the amount of leverage in the system. Because I had seen uh, real estate busts in Canada, in Toronto had a huge one in 1990. But we didn't, you know, whatever. The real estate got overextended and it crashed, and a lot of the home building stocks went down a lot. But we didn't have this thirty to one leverage or whatever it was yeah. in the system. So I was more neutral in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and what I was actually looking for was the big decline to start this year. But this is the problem with having a bias: is that you know. Yeah. And then I, but when when the market tanked, I went to being very bullish late last year and early this year. Because I do a lot of cycle research, yeah. and I think now we're in a rally similar to what we saw in 75, 76, or in 38, 39 after big 50% declines, which can take the market between 60 to 80% off its lows, which would mean a rally to roughly 1,100 to 1,300 on the S&P. But that actually, just as a quick note, that's my problem right now, is that, okay, we still might go 20% higher, but you what you really had to do is really buy, be buying in March and April. So yeah. right now, I wouldn't be buying... Well, I, actually, I mean, we had a big mar- rally from March to June. Yeah. You could then buy we had the, the Then we had a sell-off yeah, sell back to July. 
And then we've had another rally yep. through till now. Um, you know, how, how much further has this rally got well, to go? See, if you look at 75, 76, which I think <laughs> this is very similar to... And it does keep, it keeps going back, back to the 20-day moving average. And then it rallies. And, and then it rallies. Well, so you, it, that's, that's good behavior, happened, isn't it? In, in 75, 76, there was a rally similar to this one, and it was from December of 74 to the summer of 75. Mm-hmm. And, then there, and, they, and the S&P basically went up about 60% from its low, just like kind of this mm-hmm. rally, without really a pullback. Then there was a 10% pullback in the fall of 75, from about 880 on the Dow to 800, and then had a final surge to 1,000. So that's what I'm looking for. I think that we may maybe even go to 10,000 on the Dow, see a nice 5 to 10% retracement, then have the second and final surge lower. And the second and final surge is not as vicious as the first surge. It's more of a gradual yeah. kind of increase. And that's what I'm looking for in 2010. And then I think we're going to have a lot of problems in 11 and 12. You know, and especially in 12. Because 11, there's still a lot of the stimulus money comes on. Yeah. Right? But I think, like, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believing in printing of money. And mo- I know a lot of people think the money's just sitting on the sidelines or sitting in banks. But I do think it has a way to filter throughout the system. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the U.S. dollar is going to be weak because of all the huge deficit spending. I mean, it's finding support at 78. Yeah, it's just sitting at 78. But I could also argue, on the other hand, that... Even when the market's decline, it's not really rallying, too, you know? Mm-hmm. So because of that, I think we'll have a big problem with inflation in 11 to 12. And But the market might not tank. I think it'll be a mild bear market in terms of percentage loss uh, in the Dow, nominally, mm-hmm. right? But inflation adjusts to be a larger uh, thing. But I think certain assets will under, outperform. And I obviously am a bull in commodities. So we had, if we look back over the last year... The overall stock market made a low in October, yep. it made a lower low in late November, and then it made its final low in late March. Gold and gold stocks made a low in late October, a higher low in November, and by March, gold stocks had doubled. Yeah, well, I think that's a real positive sign. Then, but then, then we had the big rally in the markets from March, Gold stock kind of went sideways after that, and oil and commodity stocks took over, and they were the leaders. I actually, and then sorry, and then in the in the move from July to now, it's been uh, first it was tech stocks, and uh, but now it's the banking stocks. But I, I looked this up today, so I'll ask you a question, trivia question: What is the best performing sector in in the Dow Jones? And I mean, if you were to break it up into, you know. Insurance, banking, which was the best performing stock to? And Ooh, you, you won't terrible. get it. I guarantee you won't get it. Healthcare? It's a good guess. Tires. Tires. It's a good year. Good year and all those. Up 250% <laughs> over the last six months. That's a cyclical. And second is forestry and paper. <laughs> I figure because they're going to squash the healthcare care I, I, I just looked it up. I was, look, I was writing an article about it this morning. But, 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 but in general terms, it's, it's the banking sector that has led this last move up in the Dow. Yeah, well, because you have sector rotation. And I actually predicted this in my newsletter. In the first couple months of the year, what really worried me in February for gold and gold stocks was that in February, gold was the only thing going up. And to me, that's, again, another psychological indicator. Yeah. That when gold is the only thing going up, that's too negative. Like that's you know, you, you, it was the only thing going up. Even the gold stocks weren't going up because they were being dragged down by the market in February, right? So, I actually made the comment that if you took gold as a price of anything, 
compared to oil, like if you're talking about other commodities, compared yeah. to, you know, to um, copper. I, I actually made the comment at the PDAC, which is the first week of March of big mining conference in Toronto, that I wanted to melt down my gold and turn it into copper. And at this point, gold was probably about where it is now, like 950. Yeah. And copper was under two dollars. I didn't go to the PDAC this yeah. year. Or about that's a that's a that's yeah. a bullish indicator because I, <laughs> I was so hacked off with the market, yeah. so I didn't go. And and, and and yeah, it was probably 170 copper at the time. So because yeah. copper is up 60 percent since then, 70 percent, and gold is you know flat. So, but I think now that has come more in line that the other commodities that were so cheap compared to gold, oil, copper. Uh, other than natural gas, which I'm very bullish on, are you? But wrongly so for the last few months. But anyhow, um, uh, but I think natural gas is is destined to disappoint throughout its entire. Well, it's a spiky well, it, trade. It is a spiky trade. It's like yeah. silver. It's yes. the energy equivalent of silver. Yeah. but and it's the one that will make you millions. Well, I'm not looking for natural gas to go to twenty. I'm looking for it to go to seventy. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> so. Um, but, but anyhow, to, to get back to that, so that now has been taken out of the market mm. where gold was so expensive and the only asset that it held up. So I think we're entering a period, especially seasonally for gold, where it can begin to outperform again. And another factor of gold is this. If you look at the gold trade, uh, if you look at, the, say, 2006 to 2007 period in gold, we had a peak in the spring of 2006. Uh, gold kind of sold off during the first part of the credit crunch in August 2007 consolidated really tightly and began to break out in 07, 08 from like $600 an ounce to yeah, over 660 it. to 130 Yeah, right. and yeah. Um, I think that this trading range is very similar. You had the big bust to 680 or big decline to 680 and now the t uh, technically the, t the trading range keeps getting tighter and tighter uh -huh. and that tighter range usually comes before a break -in. So I think that... And those Bollinger Bands are getting narrower and narrower. And that's usually very bullish. So I think... The seasonally strong period for gold starts in October, November, and I think we're building for that. And you're talking about the gold stocks. If you take the HU, HUI or the XAU to gold ratio, they're very cheap right now. Yeah. Like the XAU to gold ratio, which got down to some ridiculous price ah. last fall, is still only about 15%. No, it's still, if you exclude where it was last fall. Lowest ever. It's exactly. Yeah. So that means there's, there's, there's no premium in the gold stocks. And if you look at the PEG ratio, that's price-to-earnings growth in gold stocks. Remember, gold was 600 in 2006, but the gold stocks are the exact same price now. Uh -huh. So you've seen, and oil's come off, so they're, you know, that's increased profit margins. And labor's cheaper. And, and labor's cheaper, and, and steel prices are cheaper. And so Caspita's down. Exactly. So <laughs> you're seeing evaluation contraction. So gold stocks are, and the majors are very cheap. And then, of course, you had this complete bust in the juniors last year. So the juniors, in my opinion, will begin to outperform as well. But I'm looking more of them next year in 2011. I mean, juniors still look cheap to me. But yeah. I look at, I'm looking at so many juniors that have gone up five times from but, where they were in... in, in they fell 90%. <laughs> absolutely. But you, you think to yourself, I can't buy a stock that's gone up five times. That's, that is a problem. So what I'm doing right now is I'm being very selective. But I think these 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 five cent, these ten cent stocks. There are some that are really like I know one offhand, for example, that's actually. You can a, mention it. You don't need to be shy unless okay. you don't want to mention it. Uh, um, well, I gotta be. Can I shamelessly promote? You can shamelessly promote. If you want to know what it is, you should subscribe to my newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't do that. No, you can't. <laughs> no, 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 actually, that's no. Fine. 
Um, it's actually, I'll, I'll give it to you. I got no problem with this. It's called Pebble Creek. It's P-E-B okay. on Vancouver. And uh, like, disclosure, I do own it. It's a stock actually in the Himalayas in India that's got a copper mine going into production. And it's clap, and they, they still have enough cash to live by until they get this thing into production. And, you know, it crashed from 50 cents to 5 to 10 cents. And this is going to be a near production stock. And it's actually, India is a very good place. They've really modernized the mining laws mm-hmm. in the last year or two. And, of course, the last election was very positive for the outlook of the country, too. So, but that, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Like, yeah. you have these near production plays. Um, I got another stock, for example, that's, and I won't mention the name of this one. This is a holding company um, that's trading at 28 cents right now. And the net asset value of this company is a dollar. And they have cash flow from properties and whatnot. So you're getting a lot of great deals like that. Do you follow New Guinea Gold at all? Is that a no, company? No, I don't, I don't follow that. Okay. I, I just, uh, that's a chart I follow. Okay. Because I like the setup of the chart. And it, it's, it just gets lower and lower and lower. What's it trading at? 12 cents. 12 cents. You know, it was and there's over, a lot, I mean, you know, it's a proper gold company with a proper gold and, mine. And there's a mentality that you think, well, this thing's 10 cents, so it must be crap. Like, yeah. there's a, but a lot of times these things just get overlooked. And then when you start that next cycle up, and I wrote this... Uh, there's another Olympus po- Pacific is a nice little gold producer in Vietnam who I followed, who at one stage were trading near a dollar. By January of earlier this, of this year, they were trading at four cents, you could have bought them. And they rallied from four cents to about 30 or 35 cents. Yeah. And now they're trading at... Th- but, you know, I, I bought them last year at 30 cents, and I thought I was getting a bargain. But you could have bought them at 4 cents. That was like, there's a little company on my list called Avion Resources, which is the old Nevson properties yeah. in Africa, in uh, Togo. Same thing. This stock went down to 6, 7 cents during the during the tax law selling season and the credit crunch. And they put this mine, they put the Nevson property back into production, and it went to 30 cents. So, like, there's tons of stories like that. But like you said, that's the interesting note is that even though maybe you missed the first move in these things, like, a lot of these things are still not expensive. Yeah. They've just gone from What do you think of um, rare earth and lithium? They're the new uranium. I believe that. And I think that if you're nimble enough, you should maybe put a small percentage into some of these things. But I think, see, my basic thesis has been for 10 years is this. Gold and silver are the places to be. There's going to be uranium. There's going to be platinum, palladium. There's going to be fats, rare earths. Yeah. And maybe you can play them if you know people in the, in the industry or you yeah. know about these deals. But just be very careful. And I would stick to the bread and butter, which is gold and silver. And I'm, I'm bullish on energy, too, So which is also oil and gas and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Stick to the bread and butter commodities and then just kind of, you know, be very careful. Like, buy a deal here or there. Like, you know, uranium, I, I, I actually, I think uranium is bottoming in here. Uh, absolutely. And I do like stuff like but chemical. I, I've thought that for a year. Yeah. Well, <laughs> see, the nice thing about the uranium juniors is they crashed before the rest of the market. They, they did. They crashed in 06, 07. So they've now been facing for like two, three years, if it's a legitimate company that has a real property. A lot of these things were just moose pasture, right? But no, no. And, and so I think they're ready to come out maybe quicker because... They've already worked off the overhead supply, and people have already given up on them. I had dinner with Keith Mermeyer, who um, is the head of First Majestic Silver, which is a silver producer in Mexico, uh, the night before last. And he was one of the founders of First Quantum, which was a copper company that I think it went to $140 at one stage. And he described the great mining boom 
in in Canada between I think it was 1992 to 1998, and it kind of ended with Briex. Yeah, yeah. And then you had. I don't know. Four, that was five. my learning lesson, by the way. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. And, and so you had this huge boom in, in junior stocks when the metals weren't moving to anything like the same degree. Ended in '98, then you kind of had a bear market till about 2001, 2002. And then we had another big boom in these junior stocks. But Keith describes, you know, he says his company is where First Quantum was, uh, or where Kinross or Goldcorp were in. 2000, 2001. Oh, that's interesting. And, and then we had, the, we had the other big move basically ended in about May 2006. And then junior mining has basically been in a sideways to bear market since May 2006. No, I would agree with With that. some exceptions. Yeah. So if you believe, in, and there's this, a, 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 some kind of a pattern there, and which would suggest that you know the next big boom in junior mining happens, maybe starts, gets going end of this year, beginning of next here's, year. Here's what I think is even more but bullish. But we're going to see companies like these these companies that are close to production now. Be the next five ten dollars stocks. Yeah, $50 stocks. No, the no, next that's like, Quantums and like the next Kinross and the next, you know, Gold Core. Or the, you know. I remember debating with a friend of mine back in 99, 2000, 2001, if we should be buying Eldorado at 40 cents. Of course, now the stock's eleven dollars. Yeah, right? exactly. There you go. Exactly. So, so, and I think what makes this even more interesting in the junior yeah. mining market is that those booms that you talked about, like eighty-five to eighty-seven, was another boom. Yeah. Then there was a bear market from that ninety-seven or eighty-seven to ninety-two mm -hmm. period, and then ninety-two to ninety-seven. Right. Mm -hmm. They happened within a secular bear market in gold, when just gold would just spike up to four hundred, and then you get a bull market in yeah. the stocks, or there'd be a big fine like Briex or Diamond Fields or whatever. But see, this pullback has happened because of the credit crunch, and you're in a secular bull market. Yeah. So I think what makes it really interesting is that not only have the stock prices crashed, but um, you still have $70 oil, you still have $900 gold. So they, these companies yeah. have seen the prices crash like they did in 97, but commodity prices are still strong. So I think at some point, obviously some companies are just... Yeah, they're, they're trading at a discount to the commodity. Yeah, well, if you and look at, at some stage, if you look at the CDNX index, which is you yeah. know, the Canadian Venture Index, at eleven hundred, it was at eleven hundred on the way up in like two thousand three, when gold was you know three hundred and fifty four hundred. So I think you got a lot of great values, especially in these near production plays. You know, like I, I, I think that's what you should be looking at right now. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I like. Reasonably well financed, ludicrously undervalued explorers at like five and ten cents, and guys who are you know, Gold Resource Corporation is another company I follow closely, and they they were trading around four dollars, four dollars fifty. Yeah. Lovely um, assets in southern Mexico. They got their final permit in place. Production is imminent. They send out a news release. Our final permit is in place. Stock goes up to six dollars. Yeah, see, I think there's going to be a lot of that out there. Like I said, like with Eldorado, once um, you had gold prices turn around, they could get economic on their um, Brazilian mine, and then they had this huge find in Turkey. And this, the stock just shot. Like, and if you look at it, it happens quite quick. Like Eldorado had its first move from, say, the first half of its move from $0.40 cents to $5, which is a 12 bag. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, it was 25 was actually the low. So it was actually, you could say, it's a 20 bag. But, I mean, when you catch a low like just, that, you realize how much. I mean, you really, I mean, that's that's a 12 bagger. You yeah. didn't even get, a, get in on a, you know, a clever financing deal. That was just no. bought in the market. No, and I think you'll see a lot of that going forward. Because this is how you're filtered out. And the same thing happened in, like, say, any, it can, 
not just mining. Like if you look at the dot coms after they blew up in two thousand two, then you weeded out the good from the bad. Yeah. So when the rally happened in the market from two thousand two to two thousand seven, you, know, you had the Googles and the Ebays and the yeah. Amazons. They went to near their old two thousand highs or above them, but a lot of the crap never came back. Yeah. And you'll see that in the junior market. Absolutely. Where, where, like I, a lot I of the like juniors that, yeah. that have collapsed. You'll see take out their old highs or go back to their old highs, and some because they were just big promotions or really don't have that much. Yeah, won't won't do very much. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, you look at yeah, a, a company with excellent mineralization, no chance of ever building a mine because you know there's a city on top of it or whatever. You know, there's all these reasons why you, the mine will never happen despite the excellent mineralization. Now, a, a geologist friend of mine told me that he was looking at. Like the Dominican Republic is excellent geology. Absolutely, all Central America. Oh, no, this is. Oh, sorry, it's, this uh, is Caribbean. in the island. Yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. But the problem was is that this property was basically upstream from a resort. You know, so yeah. it would have, like basically the runoff would flow right into the water supply for a resort. And he's like, well, the Dominican Republic's number one you know, part of their economy is tourism. So there's no way this thing's ever getting permitted. See you later. You know, so yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's the, like you say you can run into all those. I actually call it the P's of. Um, I am taking a little book, uh, page out of Doug Casey's book, but it's people, yeah. properties, politics, promotion, and financing. Financing fell with the PH. Yeah. And and if you have those five things, you know, then usually that's the kind of thing you want to look at in a junior. Okay. So the people put together the the deal. They have to properly finance the deal. They have to have, you know, good properties, which is all goes back to the people. They have to, if you're in a shady area, they have to know the politics of yeah. the area or be in a good political strong area. And um, you know, you need all of those keys in in you know in the company. Right, Mr. Skarika, your top three, or your top three at this moment, trades. Of the next year, trades. Okay, well, you hate this because you just set up. But my top trade right now, because I'm just looking for a 100 to 200 percent move, which would be an eight to ten dollars, is natural gas. Okay. Because all of the all the ratios, the oil to natural gas ratio, the gold natural gas ratio, is all way out of whack. So I'm not looking for like again, I'm not looking for like some kind of uh, natural gas phenom. I'm just looking like natural gas. And yes. how, how do you play that? Do you buy a natural gas stock? You can do you buy, buy an ETF the UNG, or? which is a ETF. You could buy like one of the large cap natural gas stocks. But yeah, I'm looking for a bounce to eight to ten dollars. You know. Okay. Which actually, by the way, if you adjust natural gas for inflation right now at two eighty, which is where the September contract is, it's back about to where it was in two thousand one when it got down to about one seventy, one eighty adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. And after that, it ran to ten bucks. So I think you're very yeah. cheap right now. Number two would be the gold stocks. I think the seniors and the mid caps, like we just I mentioned, those ratios with a gold breakout coming are very cheap. Let me give you an example. But yeah, at the top of the market in 2006, the HUI to gold ratio was 0.6, 60%. Now, if we say got a gold move to 1500, that would put the HUI at 900. The HUI today, as, we, as we're speaking, is about 360. So you could just get a 50% move in gold roughly, and you'll get a more than double. In a lot of the large cap stocks, if we get, and I think, like, like, for example, obviously, the in order to get a good move in gold stocks, you need the stock market not to be crashing. I don't think it will be. 
So if you have a reasonable stock market, then the gold stocks will move. I think we'll have a flat to slightly up stock market. Well, so that's the best environment for gold stocks. And that was happening in the late 70s. So, see, and, and, and we're going to use my third idea in a second, but just to get back, if you look at the late 70s, it's very similar right now. You had two big bear markets in the first half of the secular bear market. You had a 36% decline, which is probably closer to 50% in 1970, adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Then you had the big bear market of 45% in 73, 74. And then after that, the market got smaller moves, maybe 40, 50% rallies, 30% declines, that sort of thing. So that's what I think we're going to be. We're going to be in this tighter range, maybe like 900 on the downside for the S&P, 12 or 1300 on the upside, and go between that range in the second half of the secular bear market. Another interesting point is in the 40s and in the late 70s, the second half of the secular bear market was exactly the same. High inflation but a tighter range in stocks. So stocks actually didn't collapse. They kind of went sideways, but other assets outperformed. And my third trade, and I guess we'll get a little bit off resources, yeah. would be, and over the next, if we're just talking to you next six months to a year, if after we see a pullback in the equity markets, I believe that emerging markets will continue to outperform the US and the European markets. So if you say you get a good 20 to 30% pullback in China or India, or Taiwan or South Korea or whatever, I'd be looking to buy those markets. And actually, I really like Japan. I believe Japan last year made well, a secular low like the U.S. made in 1982. Yeah, well, I think you could be right. Yeah. And uh, I think March March of this year might have been the low for Japan. Okay. And so any pullbacks, and, and again, if you believe that Asia is going to outperform the U.S., yeah. Japan's demographics aren't very good, and obviously the domestic economy fell off a cliff in this recession. Remember, you always buy when the news is worse anyhow, yeah. right? And then secondly, Japan is now going to be it's exporting to the States. It's going to be exported to Asia. Yeah. So if you do believe in the China, India, South Korea, all these stories yeah. in Asia, well, that's going to help Japan. Yeah. I suppose they are vulnerable to... I mean, Japan has wonderful technology, has wonderful industry. That could all be copied that would be the one problem. I mean, it is but vulnerable to all that. Remember, they have the industrial production, too. It'd be tough yeah. to just start mass-producing rip-offs and Nissan and Honda cars. Like. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It takes a long time yeah. to build up. Well, e excellent stuff, and, and it's all very interesting, Dave, and, and thank Actually, you very much. Go I, on. And I will have a one comment on that. When I was in China four years ago, I thought it was really interesting. It's a little tidbit on that, is that I was buying all the... I don't know if I should say this on the air, but I was buying all the rip-off DVDs and well, CDs for a, dollar, myself. for a dollar and that sort of thing. And I talked you to... You paid a, a dollar, I paid 50 cents. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. And, and, but you know what? And I went to a real DVD store, and I'm like, the real ones are only $2. <laughs> you know? But... Yeah. And then a friend well, of mine The wonderful told me, thing about all that is it, it has forced the price of real DVDs down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because and, they can't compete with the rip-off. Yeah. And, and I mean, in a funny kind of way... You know, the black market is the free market. Exactly. And it's and, and charging fifteen dollars for a DVD that costs ten cents to make is ridiculous. Yeah, it's <laughs> a rip-off. And but, and it's forced you to stop it's it stops you being ripped off. But the interesting note is what this person told me is a lot I mean, of the a Chinese... lot of comics, I'll just give you an example, a lot of comics after a gig will sell their DVD and they'll they do their gig and they storm their gig for half an hour and then yeah. in the last two minutes they go, I'm selling my DVD by the door and they'll sell their DVD for a fiver or tenner. You know, that DVD has only cost them 10p to make, and they sell their DVD for a tenner at the door. They make a hell of a lot of money doing that. They make more than they do to, to, for doing the actual gig. 
<laughs> well, I don't know the way your comics work, though. But, well, I mean, you know, a comic... I mean, you might be paid, say, £200 to do a gig, and you can ship 30 DVDs for tenner each. You make 50% more okay. selling your DVDs than you do to actually do the gig, which is the reason you were there in the first place. But, but I was getting back to the Chinese. Yeah. The Chinese are very name-brand conscious. That actually, a couple of friends of mine who are Americans that are living there told me that the Chinese will rather pay for the real DVD. So when people come to their, you know, um, um, house or whatever, they see that it's not like a rip-off. Yeah. So a lot of Asians have this kind of mentality. Now, I'm the, I would rather own the real Gucci bag than the fake Gucci, yeah, Gucci yeah. bag. Why well, the fake? The chances Gucci are it would have been better made. <laughs> no, but no, no, I agree with you. I rather own something real so I think what will happen is they'll know that the real Honda rather than the you know, you know Hondaia or whatever the, yeah. the, the ripoff company is going to call it is, is a better quality made so yeah. I'm not too worried about that sort of uh, yeah, thing no, I, actually North Americans we're the worst that way we're, we're particularly when it's something that you actually use yeah. so you need the North Americans we're the worst that way we'll buy the cheap flat screen TVs and stuff like that you know rather than buying a Sony or something like and then it breaks down in a year. We wonder why. Well, but no, no, it, I agree. Something, something, you know, that, that's kind of why Germany is so strong. Exactly. Because they make proper things. Yeah. yeah when you drive a Mercedes, it's, you know. Yeah. Well, even if it's tools, you know, if you're buying yeah. a tool, you want to know that it, it's solid, a solid piece of engineering. And just as a note, the Economist did a great piece on this. They said one problem, even though Germany is the largest exporter in the world. With German products, is, they it, make, is it the largest? It's still export? larger than Ch them in China are now. China's starting to, you know, I think there was actually a month, a few months ago, where China had a few more exports than Germany. But okay. Germany still is the largest exporter in the world. Wow. But the Economist had this article and said the problem is their stuff doesn't break down enough because one one yeah. way you get is is repair fees, and they don't have. That. I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you two stories here. First one, I do I do the voice for a program called How Do They Do It which basically okay. explains how things are made. And I would say 50% of the stories end up in Germany. You know, for example, you know, how is the recording device that this show is recorded on made? And then they're taken to the factory. And the factory always ends up being in Germany. 50% of the time. That's my first story. My second story is there's an old story about a guy who drove a Rolls Royce. And he, he, he was an English guy and he drove his Rolls Royce and he went touring around Europe. And in Switzerland, his Rolls-Royce broke down. He had a problem, this is in the 1950s or the 1940s, yeah. and he had a problem, I don't know, with his cam belt or something. I phoned up Rolls-Royce, and they said, oh my goodness, it's terrible that your cam belt is broken. And they helicoptered him out, or they drove him out a cam belt, and it arrived in this distant Swiss resort the next day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they fixed his cam, and a, a man came and he fixed his cam belt, and he carried on his tour of Europe. When he went back home, he never received an invoice. So he, he, he wrote to Rolls-Royce and said, this, this such and such an incident happened and I, my cam belt broke and you did this and, and I, you know, I'm happy that you serviced me wonderfully and I'm happy to pay the bill. And he received a letter saying, uh, sir, we have, no, we have no record of any such incident ever having happened. Rolls-Royce cam belts do not break. Oh, wow. So they did the whole thing for nothing because they were so desperate to preserve the integrity of the brand. Wow. Whereas now, a company would think, oh, I can make money selling 
Campbell. Well, and actually, this article in the Economist was about that. that, it, that it's ex that's exactly yeah, the, the yeah the, the mentality issue. is that the problem is with like actually and, it, and of course there's this whole theory that a lot of things are more shoddy made today for that reason mm. that you can sell them that they're repaired parts or you have to you know charge like you know if you have a, a problem with your car that you have to take back to say the dealership mechanic because they only they can do it well they make money off that right like Ford or GM or whoever's going to make money off like fixing your car <laughs> absolutely the, the, part of the reason they are where they are yeah <laughs> Dave it's been a real pleasure talking to you we're going to go out now we're going to drink uh, we're going to eat mussels and uh, chips and uh, so we're going to enjoy ourselves there but we can't take our our, our recorder into the mussels restaurant so, Dave, why don't you uh, plug your newsletter, tell us all about it. I will say, before he plugs it, I get sent a lot of newsletters and uh, some by a lot of high-profile writers. But Dave's is very readable. He gives lots of charts. Regular listeners will know I like a chart. And, and um, you know, Dave's is a good newsletter. Well, um, thanks for that. And as you can see, dinner's on me from that intro. <laughs> but, no, my newsletter is www.addictedtoprofits.net. Um, you'll see that if you go to the website, I have a free version of the letter. Sign up for that first. You'll get a bunch of emails that have interviews like these posted and uh, the odd thing I post for the free site. And then the best part of, of being part of a free member is that we give a 50% discount for people who are free members to the regular site. I call it the Platinum Edition. And we have like seven or eight different aspects of the Platinum Edition membership which you can learn about if you sign up for the free newsletter. And again, we, we're, we don't pressure you. Just you know, sign up for the free one. You know, you'll get a bunch of interviews such as these and, you know, and a sample of the letter. And, um, you know, and then you can decide for yourself if you'd like to uh, subscribe to it or not do, at do a discount. Think, do you think the Chinese are going to start faking newsletters? i got to get my... my I got, What's yours? Addicted the Chinese, to profits. The Chinese love to gamble and invest, so I've yeah. got to get my website up in Cantonese or something. I'll tell you what. If you're, if you, yeah, if you can get your newsletter in Cantonese, now there's a growth market. I know. <laughs> Although you know what's funny, um, I, I used to run a site that it was called Stock Chart of the Day. I still have it. I should put it back up. I used to put a free chart up every day, and somehow the Times of India picked this up. So like a third of my, you know, my traffic was coming from India. And of course, another advantage in India is that there's a big English-speaking yeah. portion of the population there. So you know, the Chinese and Indian market. But if, if you can get point zero 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 one percent of two point six billion, that's pretty good. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah. the that's the commodities argument. Of course, yeah, yeah. You know. No, because actually, um, I, I'm reading a great book. I keep going on here, yeah, but it's quickly. Right. But it's um, how to prosper in the coming economic collapse and oil hits two hundred dollars. Frank Lieb, I think, wrote it. Ah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, um, no, yeah, Frank. Frank, L-O-E-B, you yeah, pronounce yeah, yeah. And I've just been reading it on my tour of Europe yeah. here. And one great thing that he uh, points he's great. out... If you, he's a great... I've, I've heard him interviewed. Oh, is he? And he's a really neurotic, hysterical New York Jew. I could totally he's, see that from the writing yeah. style as well. And, I mean, it's wonderful. It's wonderful <laughs> stuff. It's like finance's answer to Woody Allen or something. <laughs> but anyhow, he's got a great point in there that even though we look at GDP per capita, but because of the $2.6 number that China and India are already about 90% of total demand that the U.S. is. So, like, basically, if the U.S. is demanding $1 of a good, especially natural resources, China and India are already at 80 or 90 cents. So imagine when they get to 2 or 3 or 4 to 1, you know, and then 
That's the, that's the long-term argument. Yeah. That's why another reason I think these deflationists are all nuts. <laughs> well, let's not start on that. <laughs> Dave Greeker, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight. With music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.